into today. We typically go through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Mark right now, and we are up to chapter, the end of chapter 11 and in chapter 12 today, uh, which was read just a little bit, a portion was read just a minute ago. Um, I, I coach a seven and eight-year-old girls soccer. I think I've, I've said that a couple times. I am the authority on the team. I am. I have it in writing. It's official. I took a class, right? Um, it, it didn't get notarized, but um, some of the kids will submit to my authority. Some of the kids say that they submit to my authority. Some of the kids are honest about not submitting to my authority. Um, and so that's kind of where we started at the beginning of the year. Um, they, some they do their own thing. Some kind of rebel. Um, you hear things like, I want to play offense. Or last year my coach let me play defense. Or I want to be the goalie. We have goalies now. Um, I, I hear a lot of that. Kind of, I heard that early on. Um, I had one say, um, I have to play offense because my parents give me $5 a goal. Well, with no pressure there, you're on defense because I'm in charge, not you, right? I had some good fun there for a while. And so what happens was when you're, when you're trying to run a discombobulated seven- and eight-year-old girls' soccer team like that where everybody's in charge, it's an individual thing, they don't know what a team is yet, you lose, right? You lose. So we were 0-3 the way we started. We didn't, we didn't stay there. But we started 0-3 with zero goals scored. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, this is going to be a terrible year for some little bitty girls and I'm going to be a terrible coach. Um, but as the season went on, we're, we're getting better. We're still in the middle of it. We had a rain out yesterday, so we're going to replay. Um, the more they started listening to me, um, and started trusting me. Because, um, I mean, I've played more than them. I've played through high school. I've played into college even. I know um, to kick the ball, if you want power, you want your laces. If you want accuracy, you want your instep. I know, that the goal, I know how they function. I've seen them play. I know who needs to be on defense is good and scrappy and aggressive and who needs to be on offense that likes just to, to turn and shoot and, and is motivated, right? I know all of these things, their strengths and their weaknesses. I know how they're going to play best together. And so when they resist my authority and do their own thing, the team doesn't function like it should. It looks like a soccer team, though. They've all got the same color on. They've got the same shorts, the same shin guards. They've got cleats on. They're dressed the part, but they aren't playing like a team. They're playing like a bunch of individuals playing for themselves, and they have a much greater chance of losing than they do winning. Now, that's what we're talking about today, authority. That's what we see in Scripture. And so our, our morning, this morning, our points are actually going to mine them, harvest them from Jesus' quote from the Old Testament in chapter 12, verse 11. Uh, and so our first point is going to be rejection of authority. And so the verse, part of the verse would be the stone that the builders rejected. The second point is going to be the reality of authority has become the cornerstone. And then a third point is going to be response to authority. And, and, and in response to that, we, we see where Jesus says, this was the Lord's doing, um, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So there's the three points today, the reaction, rejection, reality, and response to authority. So number one, so Jesus has come to town. Let's catch up in the story where we are, right? It's Passover, and Jesus has come to town. He went. Um, last week, we, we heard about the cleansing of the temple, and Jesus came in the night before, and he went back, and then he came the next day, and he was turning over tables, and he was pushing whip, you know, uh, the money changers out of the way, and he was saying, what are you doing? That you're, you're creating obstacles of coming to God. The nation, this is the Gentile court. This is where the nations are supposed to come, and they're supposed to see you as a kingdom of priests and know what it's like to have a relationship with God. You're in the way. Get out. Jesus did not like that. And so what happens and what we're reading today is the day after that. Jesus has gone back and he's come back again 
to Jerusalem and to the temple specifically. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Sanhedrin, basically the, the leadership, the government, the church authority of the day, um, question Jesus in, in verse 28. And they say this, by what authority do you do these, are you doing these things? And, or who gave you this authority to do them? Now, we see these things right there. What does that, that mean? That primarily these things is the disruption in the temple yesterday when he was turning over chairs and kicking out money changers and explaining that you're being obstacles. That, that's mainly it. But it, it also includes, because of the plural there, most scholars believe, that it includes his miracles and casting out demons and hanging out with sinners and forgiving sin from chapter 2. If you remember the, the paralyzed guy on the mat that was lowered down and your sins are forgiven. Oh, and by the way, so that you know I have power to do that, walk. <laughs> little side note, right? And so they're like, how do you do these things? Because basically cleansing the temple was him exhibiting, displaying his authority. This is my house. Get out. But they didn't realize that. They didn't understand that. But you can understand the question if you're in charge, if your job is to look over and you're charged to protect the temple. If I walk up into your house, you don't really know me, and I walk in and I just decide, you know what, I'm going to choose the food that goes in this house. I just ran by the store. This is going in the, in, in the refrigerator, and I'm going to decide the time that we're going to eat, and I'm going to start parenting your children. I'm going to tell you how you're going to start parenting and disciplining them. I'm going to go grab your remote control. I'm going to sit on the couch. I'm going to watch what I want to watch. We're going to get the cubs on here, watch a little TV, grab a snack out of the fridge. How would you be with that? Be excited about that? Okay, all right, unless you like the cubs, right? No, you'd be like, what are you, who do you think you are? Who do you think? This is my house. <laughs> Give me the remote. Get out of my chair, right? Stop choosing my food. And you would be right to do so. Hopefully you'd be kinder than that. But that's what you would be thinking. And so that's what's going on. They're thinking Jesus came into their house, they thought. And so they have some questions on their own. And so in answer to their questions, Jesus responds in typical Jesus style or rabbinical style. He asks a question back. He says, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. you got to love this. This is after Jesus comes in, turns over tables the day before. You know that there, there's going to be, I mean, he's, he's not defensive. He's not, he doesn't sound worried. He's just like, well, let me, let me ask you a question. I mean, it's amazing to me. And so he says, is the baptism of John from heaven or, or from man? In other words, was what John was doing, was John's baptism, was it of God or was it man-made, a man, human design? What, what was it? So what was John's ministry? Well, John's ministry, his baptism, was calling the nation of Israel to repent. Because there was one who was coming that was going to be greater. The Messiah was coming. He says, I'm not, I'm not uh, worthy to tie, to tie a sandal. And so that was his, his job. And so that's what happened when Jesus was baptized in, in John's ministry. And John baptized him. That's what was happening. So if they accepted John's ministry, John's baptism was of God, then they were accepting Jesus. To accept John was to accept Jesus. Well, they can't do that. But to not accept John, that would infuriate the people. Because currently they, they believed that he was a prophet of God. And so they'd lose credibility. And they'd be the target of anger and scorn. And so they found themselves in a fix right there. 
And so they're discussing it among themselves, we see in chapter 11. So they chose to play politics and to save face and to take the path of least resistance, right? What's going to happen? They're they're more concerned with holding on to their their position, power, reputation. And let's not be too quick to point the finger. I know I don't need to do that because I do the same thing. And so they chose to look ignorant. We don't know, but that's your job. (laughs) You're supposed to be discerning the truth. But they weren't concerned with the truth. The truth wasn't the motivator there. It was the fear of the people. If we say this, but if we say this, and it doesn't sound like they ever considered the idea of Jesus' question, was it of God or not? They're like, well, if we say this, and this will happen. If we say this, and they're, they're trying to get the answer and then retro-engineer it so that they can have the response they want. Has that ever happened? They aren't interested in an honest dialogue with Jesus. And they're unwilling to know and therefore reject Jesus without even being honest with themselves. They know he's challenging their system. Jesus is exposing their hypocrisy. He exposes our hypocrisy. He runs into our hearts and he turns over the tables that are in our hearts. And we should be grateful. It seems like Jesus didn't answer them, though, out back in the story. Right, Because he's just like, we don't know. And he says, well, neither am I going to tell you by what authority I do these things. But in that response of asking about John's baptism, is it of God or of man, are the seeds to the answer of their question. Because when he was baptized, what did, John, what, what did the Holy Spirit say? He says, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. There's his identity. That's who he is. That's where his authority comes from. His authority is straight from God. It comes directly from his Father. So if you agree that John's baptism was from God, then therefore Jesus is of God, and therefore his authority is of God. So Jesus answers it, and a lot of scholars put these two two, uh, passages together, which is why we did that as well. So the end of 11 and and all of the first part of 12. So Jesus' question is, who, who, you know, where does your authority come from in chapter 11? And then chapter, first chapter of 12, 1 through 11, is Jesus' answer. Here, let me tell you, right? And he does it through a story, through a parable. And so let's read the parable because it's Jesus' answer to their question. Chapter 12, verse 1, I'm just going to read the, the parable. And he, Jesus, began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. See, the, the Jewish leaders who are his primary audience right here, there's other people around because they were afraid of them, but his primary audience is the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They know that this parable is a takeoff of the Old Testament and a story there. And, and not only that, according to Josephus and a bunch of other scholars, that over the gateway to the temple, there's this huge golden grapevine with clusters of grapes kind of hanging on. I mean, it's just like right there. It may have been in the background as Jesus was talking, going, hey, let me tell you a story about a grapevine. Listen to this. Turn to Isaiah 5. I want to read to you verses 1 through 7. We could, we could go to Psalm 80. We could go to Ezekiel 15. We could go to Jeremiah 2, uh, all those. But this is probably maybe the, the closest to what Jesus is telling them. We'll have it on the screen. Yeah, okay. So I'm just going to read seven verses. Let me sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My, love, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile, very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Sounded familiar? And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Why was it useless? Why was there nothing there? And now I will tell you, verse 5, what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste, and it shall not be pruned or hoed. And briars and thorns shall grow up. And I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This, this parable is about Israel and its leaders and its rejection of God's authority to the point that they will kill the Messiah. That's the part Jesus added in that's meant to save them. It started long before that, though. I mean, Adam and Eve were in God's, God's garden, enjoying the good gifts he gave them under his kingship, and God said, just don't eat from this tree. And they were like, what? Why? That must be the good stuff. He doesn't want us to have it. Yeah, I bet he's not good. I bet we, we know better. I bet if we eat from that, then we'll, we'll be like God. We'll, we'll know good. Let's go eat from that tree. That's got to be the best decision. We, we're gonna re so they rebel against his authority. They choose to make their own decisions. They think that they know what's best. They wanted to build their kingdom, not God's kingdom, and wanted independence from God. And it resulted in sin and death. And it wrecked their lives, and it extended up until today. The world hadn't changed much. And the scope has just grown from one family. And in Abraham, it moves from a family to a people and to a nation that generationally rebel against God and are thankless to him for their, his provision. 
Then God provides the, the law through Moses to his people. Here, this is how you should live. You're coming out of idolatry, and all you know is, is this culture of Egypt and, and foreign gods. And here, this is how you should live. And I'm the one true God. And don't make any engraven images and, and live like this. And they're not going to follow that. And then he gives them the judges for about 300 years or so to follow, and they, they still rebel. And they go through this cycle that spirals down and down to the point of where they look just like their neighbors who have no God. And then he gives them kings like they wanted. And the first three were fair, okay, they did good. But then the next thing you know, the kings go the way of men. Just like the Old Testament tells us that time after time, left up to ourselves and our own devices, we look like the nations around us that have no God. And then he sent prophets to warn the people as covenant lawyers, remember, remember the crying prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, right? Remember Deuteronomy, remember Exodus, remember what we said at the covenant of Mount Sinai. We said we would do this, and, and it was a, even a marriage ceremony, and we're breaking covenant. Remember that, or judgment, or wrath is going to come. Remember. And they just beat them, or didn't listen to them, or killed them. Those are the servants that Jesus is talking about in this parable. It's, it's, the, it's the servants and it's the prophets from the Old Testament. And Israel has for generations consistently rejected the rescue of God. They rejected the only authority that could actually free them from themselves. And Jesus is the stone that the builders that Israel has rejected. That's the point. Number two, the reality of authority. So let's look at became the cornerstone. All right, so this, this parable that Jesus is telling, right, it's really a short version of the Old Testament. It starts in the Garden of, of Eden, and, and we hear that Jesus is, that we have this promised one that's going to come, and he's going to re reconcile, he's going to crush the enemy, crush Satan, crush the serpent, and he's going to reconcile God's creation, and it's going to kind of remake the garden or the vineyard to what it should be. And so all of the rest of the Bible is the unfolding of that. And the reality in this parable is that the garden, the vineyard, is God's. He made it. He gave the wine press. He gave the tower. He planted the vine. He did everything. He owns everything. He's owed everything. And he's sovereign over everything. So he, he let the tenants work and keep the garden. That's what we read in Genesis 2.15. And then he lets them steward his vineyard in the parable, like any good first century landowner. And fruit is due from the lease. And so they're tenants, they're stewards, they're just supposed to caretake what is his. They're to take what God has given them, follow his commandments for the vineyard, and everything will go fine. But somewhere along the way, they stopped acting like tenants, they stopped acting like stewards, and they started acting like owners. And they shrugged off the authority of the owner, and they decided that they knew better. What they wanted to do was a better plan. In fact, they wanted the vineyard for themselves. Let's do it our way. This is our vineyard. He's not here anyway. I don't see him. And so they wanted to build their own vineyard, their own kingdom, just like Israel, just like us. Building our own kingdom, our own vineyard, what that means, building our lives around us at the center. Right? Our needs, our comfort, our security, our 401k, they're not wrong things, but when they become ultimate, they get in the center. And so we live our life in such a way as to protect it. 
That's what it means to, to build our kingdom, to be our, have our wants at, at the middle, to build our perfect family, getting the perfect job, to, to raise our reputation, to be the best mom, to decide, you know what, I, I'm going I'm to live with my girlfriend. I don't need to get married because I've talked with my Christian friends and they feel like that's okay. I've had that conversation many times this year. No, that's not what God calls you to. And God is not holding back from you so that you can enjoy yourself. He's protecting you so that you don't mess your life up. And we don't understand that because just like in the garden, oh, don't eat this fruit. Why not? It sounds like the best thing. Then you're holding back. No, you don't understand. We put fences around things that are, that are beautiful and treasures. We put treasures in safes so that they come out at the right time and not too early. We're trying to protect you from yourself. And so what we do is we make God in our image, and we build our kingdoms. Or we, we don't give away. See, we, we, just, we, we put ourselves at the center rather than the one who deserves to be there, which is God. It's his vineyard. He made us. Our lives are his. They did this so much that they killed the owner's beloved son, the scripture says. The word beloved shows up in Mark one other time. Chapter 1, verse 11, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and God said, you are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And so when Jesus is telling this, his immediate audience doesn't realize that he's talking about himself. But the readers of the Gospel of Mark do. You, you see how that, that, that's working right there. I mean, he, he's like, basically this is a historical prophecy. <laughs> this is what is about to happen. You see, they, the leaders there, thought that they wanted to be in control. They thought that they could make a better vineyard on their own and they could run things and receive a better life for themselves being under someone else's authority, namely themselves. And that is the lie that the enemy puts in our heads. It's not new. It's not a new lie. It goes back to the garden. Right? It's, oh, well, I got this. No, this is not new. The vineyard isn't yours. You just think it is. For a little while, just like they did. The parable shows us the sovereignty of God. In verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jamie, is this where you turn all wrath of God and do the hell and brimstone thing? I, I could. I mean, I guess. It's there. It's legit. There is a judgment. There will be a price to be paid. I can't, you can't shy away from that. And the reality is that for a while, you may think this is your kingdom, your life. But one day you realize that it's not. That's really hard for us as Americans. It, it just, it, it, it's for me. Because I feel like I can either put it on a credit card or take out a loan or I can just man up or I can just push hard enough and eventually we'll get there. We'll grind it out. We'll figure out a way. We're smart. It doesn't work like that in other parts of the world where you don't have the resources and the opportunities and the access that we do. He is the true king, and everything is from him. And you don't have anything that you weren't given. We hear that in 1 Corinthians from Paul. He says, for who sees anything different in you? Chapter 4, verse 7. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you then received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Brothers and sisters, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 7 says you were bought with a price. Oh, does that sting? It should be glorious to us. 
rather than shackles. It's because we don't understand the kingdom. We've been freed from being slaves of sin to free to follow Jesus. It's his vineyard. It's his kingdom. It is an illusion to think that it's our kingdom, and it just slows our pursuit of God. If not, arrest it. We're distracted. And what happens is Jesus' own people reject him, the cornerstone. And so Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 here. Now, why is that ironic? Jesus is always ironic. This is what I love. So a couple, two, three, three weeks ago, well, the week before Easter, we are doing the triumphal entry. And all the people were gathered around. They're waving palm branches, right? And the kings come to town, and uh, they quote Psalm 118, which is a, a Hillel song. It's, it's a messianic psalm. And they say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the name of he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And so now Jesus is in town, he's in the temple, and he quotes the same psalm, Psalm 118, except with a different twist in it. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The fact that the stone is rejected was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. And I mean, look at that. Connect that and dwell on that for a minute. That Israel is rejecting the stone that forms the base for building. And, and that's talking about Solomon's temple back in, in Psalms, right? The, the, the cornerstone that's laid down determines the, the integrity and the structure of the temple, whether it doesn't crumble or not. And so watch the beauty and the brilliance of God's sovereignty here. What was rejected by man was always intended to be the solution for man. This, this is how God works. What was rejected by man, no, not that way, is actually when you reject, that's falling right into plan with what's going to happen because he knows us. He knows how we are. We have the Old Testament to prove that we do the same thing generation after generation after generation. And yet he comes after us. And yet he seeks after us and pursues us. That don't put a smile on your face. I don't know what will. When, when, when Israel rejects God's authority and salvation, God uses it as a path for, his entire, for the entire world's ultimate deliverance from sin, Satan, and death. And so the irony is that his rejection was the plan to save us. That is the, the gospel that he, he knows us so well. These people, they wanted to be saved, but as in the past, they, they, they reject God's way of doing it. And they continue in their own way. And so Jesus, our Savior, our rejected stone, is the cornerstone. He is the temple. He is how the veil was torn from the bottom, from the top to the bottom that separated man from God and brings him back in. He is the authority. And believe it or not, being under his authority is how we thrive, is how we flourish in life, is how we find peace and we find that Jesus is actually the home and the rest for our souls. We keep thinking we're going to find it somewhere else. Like, give me that rejected stone. No, nobody says that. Give me the one we all kicked out. Give me the kingdom that doesn't look right. Give me the misfits. That's Christianity. No, we, we want, give me the best and the best technology and the smartest people. And give me, give me all of the, the richest and the most powerful. And give me the best armies. And, give, and Jesus says, you know what, no, no. I want to show you a different way. And we think our authority is ultimate when historically we've seen that it brings ultimate misery. So let's look at the response. Number three, response to authority. 
Can you imagine Jesus telling this story to the chief priests and the scribes and, and the elders, knowing that they knew exactly what he's talking about? And he's just, he just mans up right there. I'm like, here's a story. Let me tell you. That's why at the end, they get angry because they didn't know exactly what he was saying. And, and what's highlighted is, is not that just that the, the wrath of God exists and there is a day coming, and there's certainly a warning that we need to heed and we need to listen to that. But look at the patience and the grace of God that's there. It's his vineyard. He didn't even have to tell the story. He could have, goes, he could have said to them, oh, yeah, by the way, you'll find out. <laughs> you'll find out. Verse 2, he sent a servant. Verse 4, he sent another. Verse 5, he sent another with a progressively harsh treatment against them, and the hearts of the tenants were hardening toward their own, for their own kingdom. Verse 5 finishes with, and so many others either beat or killed them. Verse 6, he still had one other, a beloved son. You see, this is the gospel. (laughs) One more, one more, one more. The patience of God, generation after generation. The irony is that the apex of man's hate displays the apex of God's love on the cross. What we say is we hate this. We've got to go against this, and we're going to nail it to the crew. We're going to kill it. And God says, see that? Glory's coming out of that. (laughs) Glory and praise and honor forever and forever and ever. And what you thought was death is actually the the doorway, the gateway to life. (laughs) And we don't think like that. We don't. That you defeat death by laying down your life. Nobody, Nobody took his life. He laid it down. He he conquered death by allowing himself to be conquered. This is the mystery uh, of the gospel. The grace is that Jesus, he didn't have to tell the story to these religious people at all. He could have just said, hey, you know what, You'll, you'll, you'll find out. I mean, that's us. We are the religious people. Look at our culture that we live in. We've got it down. We can do Christianity without Christ. We can do it. All you got to do is do the behaviors right. I got them down. I used to have a little envelope with things I could check off to prove that I was doing it right. I gave offering. I gave the tithe. I, did, I gave, gave a little bit of money to poor people. I, uh, I read my Bible. I did praying. I did all that stuff. And you could do all of that and not be a Christian. I feel good about yourself. And Jesus is saying, repent from that. That doesn't save you. That's your kingdom. And you're using the Bible to justify the life that you're living that is apart from Christ, but it looks Christian. And so I say that not to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's me too. It's just that we, it, we're a product of that if we're not careful. All of us. Where is the life of Christ? Where is the desire to abide in Christ? Where is the, the need and the hurt and prayer that, that spends time weeping over people that, that have not come and seen Christ the way that we have? What are the people that we, we want to pray? We want to be a praying people. And, and, I mean, sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. If you could come and listen to sermons for weeks and months and years in a row and be no different, then my advice is to stop coming. Just wait. Just stay at home and rest. People of Christianity, there's, we have a form of godliness that's been denied the power. Are you tired of living in that? 
I know that there are many that you are of you that are. The form is not enough. The pattern and the behavior is not enough. There's no power. There's no hurt and, and, and longing and yearning for knowing who God is and, and aching when we see sin wreck this world even more and we see death and disease and when we see families broken apart and we see relationships just, just tumble apart because of sin and we just kind of look at it and go, well, that's just kind of the world. See, we, we desire little and we pray little and we expect little and then we are happy and content with little. And I just say in my heart, and, and I'm the same way. It's not like, I'm, well, I've got to figure it out. Let me, let me just tell you. Here's how you do it. I, I don't. I'm in there, too, and I'm just broken over it. I don't want to be a tenant, and I could be, and I am sometimes. But he's speaking to us, and he says, repent, turn from that. Come to me. Come to me to find life. Don't, don't go to the religious system and go to the religion and go to doing these behaviors. These behaviors have got to flow out of who I've made you. You are a new creation. And if you don't, if you don't ever desire and hurt and long and hurt over your sin and want to pray and you want to exhibit that new life and you want to give uh, your life as a sacrifice, something's wrong. Something has got to be different and, and, and we just got to talk about it. I don't have the answers for all of this stuff. All I'm getting is a bunch of questions. And I read here and I'm like, this is Jesus the Son of God. This is not a theoretical exercise from when I was little and told some stories. This is God in the flesh walking and saying, guess what? God has reached out and God has reached out and he's come after you and come after you. And guess what? One day he's going to stop because the justice requires it. And so you need to turn your heart to him. And we cry out, repent. Come to him. It's not, oh, Christianity is all these things you can't do. I don't want to do that, and I don't want to do You can't do that, and you better be good, and you better read the Bible. And it's like, no, you've missed the entire thing. It's about knowing God. It's about walking with God. It's, it's, it's about being changed and hating your sin and wanting to be like him. And then there's this struggle and this fight and this war of faith that you're just like, oh, you're just in it. And it's, it's not always like that. It's got to be sometimes. Are we okay? Can we settle for Christianity's furniture that we just kind of rearrange without any power and without any life and without any fruit and just keep whistling Dixie through our lives? And I would just say, no, you can't do that. You guys don't want to do that. I don't want to be a part of that. Well, he, just, he simply says this, turn away from building your own kingdoms. Turn away from living how you want and from what makes you feel right in your religious systems and making God into your own image so that you can check off your justification for living the way that you do and call it Christian. We all do that. And our hearts need to be pierced. And I'm not terribly prophetic, and I, I'm usually just trying to be graceful, but this is, this is what he says. And I'm, I want to see God move, whatever it costs. And I know you guys, many of you do too. And so I say, just, let's just pray. Let's not be the, the parable of tenants. Let's long to see the cornerstone. Let's find it marvelous in our eyes. That we are even told the story so that we know to turn from what is a bunch of religion to a person. That we will end up going to destruction if we don't. And so let's bring back to the coach analogy at the beginning. We'll be done. 
What's holding you back? Do you receive Jesus' authority? Do you reject Jesus' authority? Or do you, are you reluctant for it? Because you can't just get a little bit, and you can't just go into the vineyard until you get what you want out of Jesus' authority. It, it doesn't work like that. He's the owner. When we submit to his leadership, like the soccer team that I coach, we've gotten good now. We're pretty good. We're scoring goals. We're rocking it. I think we did six to one against one team. I mean, we were just spanking them. The coach knows the sport best. He's done it longer than you, in this case, eternally. <laughs> he designed it. He designed you. He knows how it works. We need to listen to him. We need to bow before his authority. The coach knows the players best. I know what girls do what best, so I put you where you function best, body of Christ. I know the opponent best. I watch them play. I know where they're weak. I know where we can exploit. And so we just say listen and submit to the authority because that's actually where you thrive and flourish. It's not that you come under this mean king that wants to keep you in line. That's not Christianity. Not my long shot. A loving father, a gracious king, a merciful master. And so we submit by organizing and orienting our lives around Jesus, not adding Jesus to our lives. So we don't just, here's our life, and Jesus, you fit in right here. It's, Jesus, here's everything I am. I want to orient my life around you because Colossians 3 tells me that Christ is my life. Therefore, my life is whatever I do and whatever time I choose to spend wherever that is. Not, hey, I'm going to do this. Why don't you come alongside me and help me out? Jesus is not your servant. You are his. With joy. That, that's, that's a role. i got to go serve, do my due diligence. Be, no, you, you're not getting it. You're, you're, you don't understand if that's, the, this, that's what, what comes to your mind. You, you got it all messed up. Actual joy flows from that when you're actually following Jesus, even through difficulty. You don't understand that, so you walk, walk through that. Submitting your life and your all to Jesus is the only way he takes it. He says, um, was it Luke, Luke 11, he says, unless you renounce everything that you have, you're not worthy to be called my disciple. So therefore, he must be worthy. <laughs> if he's willing to say, hey, what, guess what, you got to renounce everything, come after me. By the way, follow me. Well, that doesn't sound like a good deal. Oh, it's a good one. It's infinitely worthy. He's a treasure in a field, a great pearl, the pearl of great price. He's worth everything, even our lives, which is what his disciples did and laid all of them down, except for John, who stayed around to write Revelation. Lay it down. You can't live like that. You haven't met him. You haven't met him. You've met a version of him. You've met your parents' version of him. You've met a book's version of him. You have not met the Bible's version of him. And so we say, I hope you do. I hope you do. All right, let's pray together. If you're new here, we just pray these three things. Thank God for his continual pursuit of you when you didn't deserve it. Even now, if you're a Christian, that's not just unto salvation. That is unto glorification. <laughs> it comes after you and after you and after you. Man, that's good news. Don't put a smile on your face. And then pray that God would give us hearts to orient our lives around him and not the other way around. Do not add Jesus to our lives. And you can spend time repenting if you realize that's what you're doing. Hey, here's where I'm going, Lord. I want to get this job. Give me the skills to do it. No, 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 no. Lord, what job do I need? 
hey, Lord, uh, just give me the things I'm able to complete in my own power. No, 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 no. Here are the things that are in front of me. Lord, would you you strengthen me to do what you've called me to do? Because he calls you to do hard things. He calls you to do things that you can't do without him, not things you can do and then self-congratulate yourself. That's because life's about glory. It's about his glory. It's not about you. And when you learn that, you get a smile on your face. And it's not, oh, I didn't make it. It's, uh, where's Jesus? Where are you going to move? And then finally, pray for our church to hunger after God. Real simple. Let's do that one or two minutes.